Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, and he will be endocrinologist and diabetes researcher, Dr. Paul Cruz from St. Louis, Missouri. Paul makes his third guest appearance on Dr. Doctor. We've discussed with him in the past gender dysphoria, uh, as well as uh, how different chemicals in the environment can mimic different hormones in your body. And this is his uh, number one area of research and knowledge, so I think we're going to be able to glean a lot from him there. Yes, I, I think it's going to be good. And, you know, being a diabetic researcher, we kind of wanted to help set the stage for our listeners talking a little bit about diabetes in general so that we can delve into some more of the research uh, topics that he specializes in. So the big number in the United States right now is about 10% or 30 million children and adults in the United States have been diagnosed with one form or another of diabetes. So chances are Everybody listening knows or is related to or has um, diabetes. Yes, and if you know to start right out, if you have not been screened for diabetes and you're an adult, it's something that's definitely worth doing as that is kind of part of the standard of care to have your blood sugar checked periodically to screen for diabetes. Do family physicians at Credo Family Medicine in Fort Wayne do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we most certainly do, and it's something that I try and include with uh, annual adult wellness exams to make sure that we know what the patient's blood sugar is because a lot of times with diabetes, you don't feel anything and you don't have any complications until far down the road of the disease. So what's the screening test that you use most often? You know, there's, there's several ways to diagnose it, but my favorite way is a test called hemoglobin A1C. And that is a, it effectively ends up being about a three-month average of your blood sugars. It's a pretty cool test. It, it is read as a percentage of red blood cells, with hemo, with, uh, which are hemoglobin, bound to glucose. And a red blood, blood cell. Blood sugar, yes. Uh, yes, <clears throat> sugar. It, and so a red blood cell lives for about 90 to 100 days. And so that percentage of red blood cells effectively is about a three-month average of your blood sugar. So that test is not one that you can cram for. Correct. You cannot eat really healthy the day before this test and have your results look good. Uh, it'll make about a 1% difference. <laughs> 1%. <laughs> you know, and so that that is my favorite. But there's... We've, we've got data so that you can diagnose diabetes with a fasting blood sugar or even what we call glucose tolerance tests, which many of our listeners might be familiar with because that's what's used most commonly to diagnose gestational diabetes, especially in pregnant women, where they'll remember at 28 winks they had to drink that really sugary drink and get their blood drawn several times uh, at different intervals, and that helps diagnose diabetes as well. So when we're talking about blood sugar, we're talking specifically about glucose. Yes. Which is a six-carbon sugar, which is half the size of sucrose, which is table sugar. Okay. See, I, I did not prep on the chemical composition, but I'll buy what you're selling, Tom. Uh, and so I, I believe that glucose plus uh, galactose makes sucrose. I think sucrose breaks down to those, those two six-carbon sugars, which are each half the size of sucrose. And because God made sugar cane, he wanted us to be happy and eat sugar, didn't he, Andrew? <laughs> he did. <laughs> and, uh, you know, un unfortunately, there's a lot of things in our society today where, you know, as, as we talk about on this show, trying to, to find the, the right way of living and the way of health, but there's a lot of things that are out of moderation, and, and the consequence of at least sugar out of moderation is diabetes. And 422 million people worldwide suffer from diabetes, and as obesity rises, diabetes rises in parallel with it. Yeah, they, they go together, and, and I think it's good to kind of differentiate. There's two major types of diabetes. There, there's others qualifiers, but the two main types are type 1 and type 2. Isn't that creative? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Would have been pretty mean if it was type 1 and type 3, you know. But. That's an excellent point, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, type type 1, kind of if, if you had to paint a picture to help remember it for medical school tests, you would think of a child 
well, adults can have it as well, but frequently that's the type that's diagnosed in childhood. And it's a result of an autoimmune condition where your body's own immune system attacks your own body, um, doing damage to your body. Uh, would be very similar to a lot of types of thyroid disease or psoriasis or other things of that nature. And so your body attacks the pancreas, your own pancreas, and you cannot produce enough insulin or eventually not any insulin at all. And insulin is necessary to put your blood sugar where it belongs in storage. Correct. We, we think a lot of times of the analogy of a key and a lock. And insulin is the key that helps unlock your cells to allow it to use blood sugar. And if it can't, the blood sugar just keeps rising and rising. And all kinds of bad things happen with that that Dr. Cruz will talk about. But type 1 diabetes, you are not making enough insulin. Type 2 diabetes, you've got plenty of insulin, but the cells don't respond to it. So instead of a key problem, it's a lock problem. It's, it's a lock problem. The, the cells don't respond to it. The insulin's not as effective. Or for, for folks that carry a lot of extra weight, they might just not have enough insulin either. Because if they, if they have too many cells, so to speak, too many locks. And now they used to use terms like childhood onset diabetes and adult onset diabetes, but these are no longer used because some children can have type 2 diabetes and some adults can develop type 1 diabetes. So uh, it's, it's pretty interesting. It, it used to be much less so, but now especially with you know more and more uh, Americans, but people everywhere carry extra weight, type 2 diabetes is very much related to your metabolic status. Uh, if you're a healthy weight, you're less likely to get type 2 diabetes. And if you're overweight, you're much more likely. Uh, also related to how much you exercise and what types of food you eat um, can you know, influence that process as well. And we had another endocrinologist on several months ago uh, where we were talking about something called intermittent fasting. Yeah. Where we... Uh, which I've been practicing since then, eating uh, for about an eight to nine hour window during the day and not eating for a 15 to 16 hour window. And what studies with that kind of eating show is that even if everybody in the study eats the same amount of calories, those who have the fasting window have a lower rate of developing type 2 diabetes. And, you know, Dr. Craig Stump, the endocrinologist we interviewed there, uh, pointed out that the body needs to exercise its two different ways of making energy. You know, the one where you've got high insulin and you're storing sugar, but then the other where you're breaking down the sugar from the stores. And if you have that fasting window every day, then you're using both sets of the system and you're much less likely to become resistant to your own insulin. You become responsive to it. Yeah, I like the analogy that, that he gave where... Just like you exercise your muscles, you want to exercise your metabolism as well. Yes. Yeah, I, I like that too. And um, hopefully I'm reducing my risk of type 2 diabetes. You know, something, uh, if Chris Stroud were here, our other co-host, he would talk about something he sees pretty often, and that's called gestational diabetes. Yeah, that's right. That's a That's a unique kind of qualifier for diabetes where a patient will temporarily, usually, have... A, the diabetic process going on in their body while they're pregnant, while they're gestating. And then after they deliver the baby and they're no longer pregnant, frequently they return back to normal. But it is a bit of a harbinger for the onset of type 2 diabetes later in life. So even if someone returns to a normal status and gestational diabetes goes away, it's something that they have to be extra aware of going forward. And the babies of these moms often end up to be larger than average. Isn't that right? That's correct. You know, that's, that's one of the things that prenatal care is so important for is monitoring mom's blood sugar because if the baby gets to be too big, that can complicate delivery and even increase the risk for things like cesarean sections. Right. I mean, big baby, harder to get out through the birth canal. We have to make another exit plan. That's right. So before we get on the phone with Dr. Paul Hrues, I, of course, have a question. All right. The medical the trivia, trivia question, question of the day. Is this a sweet one? Oh, as sweet as can be. So patients with type 1 diabetes now may receive a pancreas transplant. 
So you've heard of heart transplants, kidney transplants, liver. Well, there is such a thing as a pancreas transplant. Now, in over 90% of the cases of a pancreas transplant, another organ must be transplanted with it. Really? Yes. What is that other organ? Stay tuned for the end of the show when you'll hear your answer. But before that and after the break, we'll be here with Dr. Paul Hrues talking about all things diabetes. Welcome back. And we're here with our guest today, Dr. Paul Hrues. He's Associate Professor of Pediatrics, Cell Biology, and Physiology in the Division of Pediatric Endocrinology and Diabetes in St. Louis, Missouri, at the Washington University School of Medicine. And for the third time, Paul, welcome to Dr. Doctor. My pleasure to be here. Hey, Paul, when the average person hears the term diabetes, usually the first word association they come up with is sugar. And that's all they know, something bad about sugar. How do you simply explain to a non-medical person what's going on in the body of someone with diabetes? Well, it's certainly true that sugar is at the, the center of uh, the condition of diabetes. But when we talk about diabetes, and we're specifically talking about a, a form of diabetes called diabetes mellitus, um, we're talking about uh, an abnormality in the body's ability uh, to regulate blood sugars, uh, either from a problem in the production of insulin or the ability of the body to respond to that hormone. And, and really the name comes from uh, the one of the symptoms of the condition, when the blood sugars uh, rise high enough, uh, you begin spilling uh, that sugar into your urine, and together with the sugar, you uh, release water. And so increased urine output um, is one of the hallmark signs of diabetes. And, what does that have to do word, with the word diabetes? It, it's actually, uh, the, the word means siphon, and, and we talk about this as diabetes mellitus, and so uh, really to distinguish it from another form of diabetes, uh, what people often call water diabetes uh, due to an inability to concentrate um, your urine. So diabetes mellitus is, uh, means uh, sweet siphon, so uh, <laughs> that when you, uh, the urine itself, the way they used to initially diagnose it was by um, tasting the urine. Yes. It was sweet. I don't, I don't, don't recommend do that people anymore. doing that today. <laughs> oh, well, during my first couple of weeks of medical school, they, were, they told the story about how they used to teach medical students about diabetes, but they were really trying to teach them to be observant and how, first of all, they had this cup of urine up front in class, and the instructor dips his finger in and tastes it and then has all the other students do it. And then after the students do it and they grimace and they're kind of like, oh, that was awful, and he'll say to the students, so how many of you notice that I dipped my index finger into the urine, but I licked my middle finger. <laughs> That's uh, terrible. You know, that, is, that story actually um, you know, dates back to my time in medical school as well. I think that joke has been going on for many years. That's probably William Osler did that back in the 19-teens <laughs> or something. Uh, yeah. That's terrible. So there are two basic types of diabetes. How do they differ, Paul? Um, yes. Uh, so as I, as I said earlier, the, the diabetes, the, the dysregulation of the blood sugar can either be uh, caused by um, not enough insulin being made or inability of the body to respond to that insulin. Uh, we really uh, traditionally classify diabetes um, as either type 1 or type 2, and, and that relates actually to the causes of, of the uh, problems with the blood sugar. So uh, the type 1 diabetes is mainly a problem with the ability to make insulin, and it's specifically due to uh, the way that that occurs, um, meaning that the immune system that normally fights infection really gets fooled, and it thinks a part of the body called the pancreas that makes insulin uh, is a disease, and it attacks that, and over time, the ability to make insulin is destroyed. Uh, the other type of diabetes, type 2 diabetes, which is the more common form of diabetes, uh, starts off with uh, an inability to respond uh, to that insulin. So there's resistance to insulin that over time uh, takes a toll on the body and eventually the, the pancreas itself uh, will not be able to keep up with insulin production. So in the early phases of the disease, the insulin levels actually rise. Um, and But when you get to the point where blood sugars are elevated, it means that the body can't overcome that uh, insulin resistance, and that leads to the same symptoms that we see in both of the, the forms of diabetes. Paul, you know, one of the things that I think confuses a lot of people is the different terminology subtypes that, that we do here. 
between insulin dependent or non-insulin dependent or I, I know in the past some folks would say childhood onset or adult onset. Are these just functions of different uh, medical billing codes or what, what's the preferred terminology that should be used now? Well, it's actually getting more complex than just type 1 and type 2 diabetes as we try to understand this uh, for the, the causes. But you're right that we used to call it uh, um, insulin-dependent or insulin-non-dependent uh, or insulin-independent. The reality is that in both types of diabetes, you may need to get to the point where you need insulin. At the point that you always need insulin. In, in many people with type 2 diabetes, they will get to the point in their disease where they have to start taking insulin themselves. And then, you know, the distinction between uh, onset and adult onset, we know that there are now many children that are developing the type 2 diabetes, and sometimes type 1 diabetes doesn't present until later in life. So really the understanding uh, comes, um, and the terminology actually comes from an understanding of, of the overall causes of, of the diabetes. And when I say it gets even more complex, when we, we talk about type 1 diabetes uh, being an autoimmune condition, we now know that there are many other types of diabetes uh, that can be caused by single gene defects. And there are also people that have features of both so that they have a, a initial type 1 diabetes, but because they're overweight, they'll have insulin resistance. So um, it is important to understand uh, the cause of the diabetes and, and distinguishing type 1 and type 2, because as well, I'm sure we'll talk about, the treatments uh, sure. can be very Paul, different. Did, did type 1 ever, was it ever more common than type 2 diabetes? Well, actually, the, the type 1 diabetes is really a small fraction of, of all of the diabetes, but what we've seen... But even 100 that, years uh, ago? Well, t type 2 diabetes really has, has really taken over um, as we have become more obese, and it gets right. to one of the mechanisms that leads to a, so so when people were lean uh, right. and they they weren't and they were um, exercising regularly just to survive, uh, type 2 diabetes was very rare, and, and again that's what we've seen is a tremendous growth, and most of the growth that we've seen in diabetes has been um, the type 2 diabetes. Right, and that's what I'm looking for is how much of an increase in type 2 diabetes have we seen in the the last 50 to 100 years relative to type 1? Oh, it, it's really skyrocketing. And, and we can even say that in, in my uh, pediatric uh, physician, uh, we almost never saw type di uh, 2 diabetes in children, uh, even as early as 20 years ago uh, when I first um, began practicing endocrinology. Uh, now, uh, up to 20% of the children um, are coming uh, with type wow. 2 diabetes. That's so amazing. it's really um, increased uh, quite a bit. So down to the nitty-gritty, why is it so important to keep the blood sugar at a certain level? Um, well, certainly, um, the as we you know the initial symptoms of, of being thirsty and going to the bathroom uh, all the time uh, are are not just an inconvenience. Uh, those higher blood sugar levels uh, can lead to uh, tremendous damage to uh, many areas of the body, and this has been really well established with with some very well done studies. In, in both type 1 and type 2 uh, diabetes patients, uh, meaning that the better blood sugar control uh, that you have, the lower uh, risk you're going to have of the complications. You know, this includes um, problems with, with um, vision, so you can um, have uh, develop something called retinopathy and, and lose your eyesight. Um, you can have uh, problems with your uh, kidneys and, and failure. Uh, you can have problems with your uh, both large and small blood vessels um, that leads to um, problems with circulation leading to amputations, um, increased risk of heart disease, um, nerve damage um, that can be you know, quite debilitating uh, to, the, to the patients. So really, the high blood sugars themselves uh, can lead to many uh, complications that are, are really you know, affect the overall health of, of people that are affected. And it's not just the blood sugar itself, it's the body's response to that high blood sugar, um, inflammation, buildup of fat in, in organs where it would normally not be present. So that's why we, we really work hard um, to be able to diagnose diabetes and to try in the treatment of diabetes to keep the blood sugars um, under um, in as good of control as we possibly can. Well, Paul, you had men mentioned, you know, all these different things that can happen as a result of diabetes, and, and there's probably a lot of our listeners who want to be sure that this is not affecting them. What, what are some of the things that a patient might see as a warning sign for this condition? 
Well, it's important, you know, in distinguishing the type 1 and type 2 diabetes, the type 1 diabetes usually will present uh, more rapidly. And so when somebody develops type 1 diabetes over a very short period of time, um, you know, weeks to most a couple of months, um, they will start developing the, the classic symptoms of diabetes, increased thirst and, and uh, increased urination or going to the bathroom. And, and if not, it's not detected in that uh, in the type 1 diabetes, it can then lead to um, uh, significant weight loss and nausea and vomiting. And, and the, the people that are, come down with type 1 diabetes uh, can get very, very sick, a buildup of acids in their blood, and, and really um, can, can lead to death in, in a very short period of time if not treated. Type 2 diabetes, the symptoms are the same, the, um, the classic symptoms of being thirsty and going to the bathroom all the time. But type 2 diabetes often will uh, develop over a longer period of time, and often it's uh, not recognized. In fact, um, about a quarter of all of the people that have type 2 diabetes uh, have the disease, but they don't know it. It's undiagnosed. And so, you know, being aware of what the symptoms are um, and, and not just dismissing it as, as something or, or not even being aware um, that when people start uh, drinking more, losing weight, even though they're eating a lot, feeling more fatigued um, or uh, getting up in the middle of the night several times each night uh, to go to the bathroom. All of those uh, can be symptoms of, of diabetes. And it's so important to recognize them. And it's also important to, uh, if people are at risk uh, for diabetes, uh, to be able to be screened on a, on a regular basis. And Paul, when somebody finds out they have diabetes, some of them might say, well, I really don't notice much about this. And, you know, if I get really bad problems, I can reverse the damage, can't I? Well, that's that's one of the, the, the problems. So that um, many of the problems that, that people develop um, uh, can't be reversed. And, and so we want to really uh, prevent that from happening uh, from the outset. Um, that's the and, point and I wanted to make is, yeah, they're yes, not yes, reversible. Yeah. Well, and you it's not up, reversible. I'm sorry. I was going to just comment that you brought up a really interesting statistic that a quarter of the people who have this don't know they have it. So even before they have symptoms, they may already be sustaining some damage. And, and exactly. And, and that's why uh, when uh, we diagnose people with diabetes, we actually begin looking for those complications with type 2 diabetes uh, from the time that we uh, recognize the condition. So um, once um, we know that somebody has type 2 diabetes in addition to um, starting uh, appropriate uh, uh, therapies for that. Uh, we will screen for um, uh, damage to the eyes, um, the kidneys, and and um, and begin looking for some of these complications. In type one diabetes, uh, it usually takes uh, several years uh, before we start seeing the complications. So we're uh, we won't always uh, do all of that screening uh, from the beginning. Paul, but and it, unfortunately, do you find that the results of this screening works to uh, help patients want to take better care of themselves? It seems to me that when somebody has a condition where they don't quickly see the results of the problem, they just ignore doing something about it. How do you get over that, that emotional hump that they want to do something about it? So because of how prevalent um, you know, diabetes is, how many people have it, um, very frequently when people um, find out that they have diabetes, they can think about a, a relative or a friend or somebody ah. that they know uh, that has uh, the condition. And, and uh, very frequently, um, they will recognize you know, the problems if um, they were not well controlled and the things that they um, experienced because of the diabetes. And, and really... The you know the the hope is that in in recognizing that we know that we can prevent um, or at least reduce the risk. We can't prevent it completely, uh, but we can reduce the risk of, of developing these complications. And so that often serves as as a motivation. Very good. But the reality is 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 that even uh, people who are well motivated um, often have difficulty. Uh, uh, with with the the more simple interventions that can be done uh, to help uh, with the diabetes. Well, let's take um, a child with type, with type 1 diabetes who comes to your office. They don't know they have diabetes. They're drinking a lot. They're urinating a lot. They're losing weight. What do you do for that child to evaluate them? 
Well, the children um, most often uh, will, in the history, it, it will have come on uh, within a relatively short period of time. We're talking about the um, 80% of, of children with diabetes that, that have type 1 diabetes. And, um, and by simple uh, blood tests, we can uh, very easily diagnose the condition. Really, there's nothing in, else in childhood that leads to the high blood sugars that we uh, find. And, and we often will measure something called a hemoglobin A1C, which uh, measures an average blood sugar over months. And when that's really elevated, um, we really know the diagnosis right away. And, and because we know that most children that uh, have diabetes have the type 1 form of diabetes, the treatment uh, that's necessary is insulin. And so we need to begin that immediately. And in order to do that, we, we need to educate the, the child parents on, on how to monitor blood sugars, um, how to um, be able to give uh, insulin, but also uh, to be able to do effectively many of the other uh, components of, of good care. So for how, diabetes. how old are the kids usually when they come in? Uh, we see them at any age, really. We've seen kids um, diagnosed in, in infancy all the way up uh, through, you know, through the time that I follow them through college. Um, so it really can happen at any age, and um, you know, the timing is, is pretty So what life changes do they have to do? I mean, how often do they prick their fingers? How, you know, how yeah. often are they taking insulin? In insulin's a complicated medicine to administer. I guess that's that would be one of my questions when you're given this diagnosis to a, a family, especially of a of a child with diabetes. How do you explain that to them? The the regimen with the insulin. Yeah, it it is a very uh, complicated treatment that we're recommending, you know, for the, for the family. And, and often it, it comes as a shock. Um, I think the first thing that we do is, is try to put it in, in context. Uh, for children with, with diabetes, there are some things that are going to be clearly different uh, for that child uh, throughout the rest of their life as far as uh, monitoring blood sugars, uh, changes in, in their diet uh, to be able to allow uh, effectively to give uh, insulin uh, to keep blood sugars under control. Um, and um, and be able to um, administer the insulin reliably. Um, but I also like to, to tell the, the families that there, uh, everything else uh, really has not changed. So that as far as coming down with a chronic disease, um, that if they keep their blood sugar under control, that uh, they will have more energy and be able to do well in school and do all the other things that they have uh, with their dreams. But um, it comes as a shock, and, and most families can, can very quickly um, uh, get the basic survival skills, and then over the next several months, uh, they really uh, settle into uh, the diagnosis and, and treating that. It becomes particularly challenging during uh, the period of adolescence uh, when, um, because in, in younger children, the parents are doing much of the monitoring and, and the treatment, but uh, as the children are gaining independence, um, it becomes uh, a challenge to be able to, to find that right balance. You know, Paul, that was, that was one of my questions, too, just thinking about some of the patients with type 1 diabetes that I've gotten to care for, especially through adolescence. I see kind of a, a psychological struggle with a lot of them where some of them really take ownership and they're so well prepared and reliable and it's kind of a an extension of their personality that they do a good job controlling their sugars and then i see a lot of a lot of other kids that kind of throw their hand up and say you know this this is not fair that this happened to me and i'm going to kind of ignore it but that leads to a lot of early problems do you, do you find that most most people adjust well through adolescence or is it more 50-50 it really uh, runs the, the spectrum. I think uh, most children at some point are going to, um, in trying to settle into the, the diagnosis and the treatment, um, are going to struggle at times. But there are some children that, that are, are very good uh, in being able to, to do everything uh, that they're required to do uh, from the very beginning. But I think if we look across averages, um, it is very typical uh, for, um, for diabetes control to be um, more difficult uh, during the teenage years. And, uh, and, and we do, do our best uh, to work them through that. I think as some of the technologies are increasing and, and we're able to develop, uh, uh, deliver insulin in a way that, that is less disruptive to their lifestyle, uh, um, we've had greater success. So is there a way to, to deliver insulin without giving a shot, Paul? Yes, and this is one of the, the major advances that we've had. Um, 
recently is the ability to give uh, insulin uh, through a, a pump device uh, that's placed under the skin and it delivers insulin continually and allows a person to give a bolus of insulin uh, at the times that they eat it and on top of the, the, the basal insulin that's being given. And that has provided a lot of flexibility. Um, it uh, makes it much easier to be able to, to give the insulin. And uh, it's uh, many of our, our patients, more and more of our patients are, are being treated uh, with How do you get the pump. insulin into the pump under the skin? Um, so there's, there's actually a needle that goes under the skin that, um, that comes out and there's a little catheter um, right under the skin so that's just attached to the skin. The insulin can be delivered. Um, the pump devices uh, vary. Um, there's a, one of the pump devices that's actually a disposable pump. Another one that um, uh, really can just be attached to the belt or the arm uh, and allow them to, to program it. So has this resulted in far less side effects and organ damage in the children and young adults who are able to wear these pumps? Well, it, it does require some, some monitoring, and, and really what has been um, the major advance is not only the pumps, but also the ability to monitor the blood sugars, and we can do this. We used to have people do finger pokes and check right. um, several times a day before they ate, and um, now we have uh, continuous glucose monitors that will monitor the blood sugar continually um, uh, throughout the entire day. And what's very exciting is we now have um, pump pumps that are now integrated with the continuous monitors and as they, they start talking to each other, the, the sensors themselves can direct how much insulin is being delivered and that's really made a huge difference. That is exciting uh, and on that note we need to take a break here at Dr. Doctor but we'll be right back with more diabetes for you. And we're back from Dr. Doctor talking to Dr. Paul Ruse about diabetes and we've talked a lot about type 1, Paul. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about type 2, which is the more common type of diabetes. Yes, it, it, it's the more common type of diabetes, and, and it really um, is uh, what we see uh, more often in adults uh, with, with the condition. So t giving insulin to somebody with type 2 diabetes is one of the, the treatments that we um, have and, and that we use uh, frequently, but there are options available for, for the type 2, uh, the patient with type 2 diabetes that are not available uh, to um, someone with type 1 diabetes. Why, why and, is that? And so um, the whole um, type 2 diabetes is, is caused by an inability to effectively use insulin, and there's many medications that can be given, some of them uh, by injection like insulin, but also some uh, through oral medications that will help the body become more insulin sensitive. And, um, and so we, we often can uh, treat the type 2 diabetes without insulin, at least in the early stages, um, although as time goes on uh, and as the pancreas um, uh, starts to give out more and more, um, more uh, people are, are going to require uh, insulin. Even Paul, before why is diet important in treating type 2? Yes. W what is it that the diet does that helps the pancreas? Yeah. So, so um, you know, even before we talk about medications, uh, really the diet and exercise are, are you know, some of the bedrocks of, of treating type 2 diabetes. And, and the reason why um, is that your diet, when your pancreas is not working um, as it should, giving lots of uh, sugars um, becomes very difficult. So the more sugar that you eat or simple carbohydrates that you eat um, requires more insulin to be released. And if the, the body can't make that, it, it often has problems controlling blood sugar. So by uh, altering the diet to avoid those simple sugars, uh, the, the body can often keep up better and prevent those blood sugars from, from uh, becoming elevated. So are those um, the low glycemic index foods that you're referring to? Um, yes. And, and so um, when we talk about what nutrients that, that people uh, take in, there are really three classes. There, there are proteins, fats, and carbohydrates. Within the category of carbohydrates, uh, we have uh, simple sugars that uh, lead to very rapid rises in your blood sugar and then more complex carbohydrates like starches that, that actually get absorbed and, and elevate blood sugar in a m much more slowly. And so that is what we're referring to by, gly by glycemic indexes is, is um, 
really how fast that they act. And, uh, and that's one component of the diet. The other component is, is just being a, a, aware of the total number of calories because uh, obesity or being overweight um, is a major risk factor for type 2 diabetes and uh, leads to uh, insulin resistance. So by being able to lose weight, um, and that can be either through diet uh, or exercise, um, the body will respond better to the insulin, and that, that alone uh, can sometimes uh, treat the so diabetes. So how does fat lead to, to diabetes? How does that affect insulin? So f- fat itself, um, there are a couple of reason, ways that, that fat uh, can affect your insulin sensitivity. One um, is just that fat is more uh, dense as far as total calories. So if you're eating a lot of fat, you're more likely um, to have excess calories that leads to weight gain that it will lead to the insulin resistance. But fat uh, getting into tissues uh, and not being burned uh, can also lead to insulin resistance as well. And part of that is, is really a major part of the disease itself um, in, in tissues that they have fat accumulation um, that, uh, that makes the insulin not work as well as it normally would. So, Paul, we've even had guests on this show talk about the evils of carbohydrates and that we as human beings should be eating less carbohydrates because they're bad for us. They're the cause of obesity. How do you respond to that sector that believes that carbohydrates are the real bad guy in the diet? Well, I, w- I would say that uh, everything in moderation, um, so that I think anytime somebody tries to uh, change the diet uh, in an extreme fashion, it, it um, becomes very difficult to sustain that over time. Uh, if we think about uh, how we as human beings have, have always lived until very recently, the, you know, the simple sugars have usually been uh, very rare. We, yes. we did not really have access to them. And, but we did uh, eat carbohydrates um, that are more complex starches, and, and some people can eat them as a, a mainstay of their diet and not develop diabetes. It's all a matter of, of uh, being able to um, match what your body needs to what it's able to burn and then also um, you know, to uh, avoid those simple sugars and, and, and focus more on, on the more complex carbohydrates. Um, so it really needs to be a balance um, and then also focusing on total calories. Paul, we we had another endocrinologist on our show in the spring talking about intermittent fasting, which is a new dietary trend where you only eat for a few hours every day, maybe about eight hours, uh, and you fast the rest of the day. And he mentioned that there's research showing that going without food for 13 or 14 hours in a row actually reduces the risk of type 2 diabetes, even if people eat the same amount and types of food and maintain the same BMIs. What is your understanding of this, and, and how, how should we think about this? Yeah, and actually that evidence is, is growing. I think as, as time goes on, we have more and more evidence that uh, supports that that actually is of benefit. And, you know, if we think again about how uh, we as human beings have, have uh, until very recently had to live, we went through periods of time where food was scarce and, and when we were hunters and gatherers and we had to, um, didn't have ready access to food you know, from the supermarket, um, we had these periods of, of fasting. Uh, one way to think about it is that the body um, is, is trying to adjust uh, to the amount of uh, nutrition that it's seeing and, and it has to make uh, very important decisions about um, how to respond um, to prepare itself uh, for um, for times when, when food is not available. So when the body has nutrients, um, it, it works to store those nutrients. Um, and then when it's fasting, it breaks them down. When you're eating continually, that you're, you're in only one half of that whole process as far as um, uh, building up uh, storage of nutrients. And so it makes sense of, as we understand how the body is designed um, to know that, that there are benefits to those periods of, of fasting as, as the body responds uh, to those uh, periods when f- uh, food is not available. Paul, and there's, again, it's very exciting. Type 2 diabetes patients are often on multiple medications for their diabetes. Why is that? Um, so one of the reasons why they're on, on medications to begin with is that um, even though diet and exercise are the hallmarks of, hallmarks of um, treating uh, 
type 2 uh, diabetes, um, most people um, need additional help. Uh, there are, are different medications uh, that act at different levels that, that can be very helpful. And so um, there are, are a whole d- a number of different classes of medication that will affect blood sugars in different ways um, by making the body more sensitive to the insulin that's being made, by working to increase the release of insulin um, from the, the pancreas that is still functioning to make it work better, um, or to allow that sugar uh, to be um, uh, disposed of in, in different ways. And so um, the number of uh, different classes of medications have, have increased. The earlier medications uh, focused on uh, increasing insulin secretion from, from the, the pancreas, um, a class of medications called sulfonylureas, uh, but we have a whole number host of, of other classes of medications um, that uh, not only have effects uh, directly on blood sugar, but also um, some of them have beneficial effects on risk of some of the complications. Very good. So let's get into some of the fun stuff. The pancreas has a number of different types of cells, and the cells that make insulin are called beta cells. And you mentioned to me that we're trying to make beta cells out of stem cells. What's going on there? So, you know, one of the, there, there's a couple of different approaches that people have had uh, to, to treat the disease. And, and because it's a problem with the, the beta cells, um, there are a couple of different strategies to be able to replace those uh, beta cells that aren't working properly um, or that have been destroyed through, through the immune system in, in type 1 diabetes. Um, one, one approach is, is to do uh, an organ transplant, to, to, to transplant a, the pancreas itself. Um, and, you know, the, the problem with that is that once you put in that foreign tissue, the body uh, recognizes it as being foreign, mm-hmm. and so there's an immune response. And so if that's going to be successful, uh, patients have to take medications, very powerful medications that um, uh, lead to immune deficiency, and, and that can cause its own uh, problems. So the approach to be able to... Um, uh, engineer cells, somebody's own cells, uh, for example, uh, to be able to make insulin is, is uh, one of the uh, areas of active research going on uh, to be able to do this. So um, the looking at stem cells, these are cells that, that can be uh, programmed there, um, to be able to start producing insulin even if they don't at the beginning so that they're in a state where they can uh, differentiate or change into um, various um, uh, tissue-like uh, properties. Um, and, and that's exciting uh, because what people can do then is, is um, have an endless supply of, of the beta cells. Another problem with the, the transplants is that um, the tissue itself is under short supply and the people that need it uh, you know, can't find it. How far along are we um, with the research with beta cell stem cells? Um, well, for all of the, the promise, and, and I think that there is progress being made, we're many years away from having that being a reliable form of, of treatment. Um, there was a lot of um, uh, effort that was put down initially uh, in studying uh, embryonic stem cells um, as the hope um, you know, for the future, despite right. all of the ethical and moral concerns in, in using the uh, embryonic stem cells. And, and what many researchers have found that, that there are many problems with, with that uh, source of, of stem cells, uh, aside from the ethical um, problems. Um, for example, the, the, they're too good at um, being able to, to differentiate and they can form uh, tumors. Um, so there's a, but there's a lot of work going on now with adult uh, stem cells and even taking a patient's own cells. So for example, taking skin cells and then being able to induce them into the state where that they're uh, uh, able to differentiate into uh, producing insulin. And, and I think as the techniques have increased, um, the, the chance of that being successful is growing, although they're still at the very, very early stages right now, just trying to be able to do this um, uh, reliably and, and to keep that uh, process that it can be sustained. And then um, also being sure that, that the, um, the immune system doesn't uh, attack those cells as well. Well, and Paul, you, you had mentioned some of these new continuous glucose monitors talking to the insulin pumps. That sounds to me almost like an artificial pancreas. It, what, what's been uh, developing in that regard? 
Yes, and that's that's the term that that has is now uh, being they're being referred to as artificial pancreases, and and really I think you're going to see that, um, and we already are seeing those in use right now. They're going to be getting better uh, over time as well, um, with the technology of being able to. Um, control uh, the insulin delivery uh, through the, the glucose sensors. They're very, very reliable now. Um, there's a very sophisticated uh, computer programs that need to be done um, to not only look at changes in blood sugar, but predict where things are going to go because it's pretty complex, not just um, where the blood sugar is, but also um, how sensitive the tissues are, which really is influenced by your exercise and, and how the blood sugar changes is by the types of food that, that you eat. Um, but we're seeing uh, great success, and many of them are already being used. Another advance um, is, and we didn't talk about this um, uh, yet, uh, the, the major limitation to treating diabetes uh, with insulin is low blood sugar, hypoglycemia. Mm -hmm. And that's actually the limiting factor. It's a thing we worry about most short run, even in the children um, that we're treating. Um, and so we want to be able to uh, prevent that from happening, keep the blood sugars under as good a control as we can um, without leading uh, to low blood sugars. And so some of the pumps that are, are being developed are um, going to combine not only insulin, but another hormone that's made from the pancreas called glucagon that actually oh, normally raises blood sugar. And so that's, um, that's the normal response to a low blood sugar is the body to make the glucagon to try to keep the blood sugar uh, from going too so, low. Paul, so we're seeing all of these. Since you're going this direction with both insulin and glucagon, what would be the advantage for someone to receive a pancreas transplant over having it? quote, artificial pancreas? Um, well, you know, it's actually uh, becoming um, where the technology is going. Um, you know, we're seeing that, that the advantages of, of, the, of the artificial pancreas or the, uh, the feedback loop um, may have advantages if we can't overcome the problems with um, immune suppression and the things that we need with a, with a pancreas transplant. We're actually seeing that they may be more uh, of, of benefit. There are people, uh, for example, that um, that have to have a transplant anyway. So, you know, the one of the complications that you get uh, is, is kidney failure, and so sure. many people have to have a kidney transplant. And if you're going to have one organ transplanted, it um, would certainly, um, you know, not be any more risk um, to um, to have a pancreas uh, at the same time. But so, you know, I, as the technologies are improving, um, there are advances in being able to control the immune system as well. Um, the advantage of, of having a transplant, there still are things that can go wrong with the pumps. So and, uh, with all of the best technology, um, that things uh, can often malfunction, and, and even with the pumps we have now in the, in the sensors. Um, so um, try to keep it as, as simple as possible, um, but have it uh, try to... Um, uh, come as close as possible to what the body would normally do if you had a, a normal uh, pancreas without diabetes. In our last minute, Paul, what f information would you like to leave with the audience? I think everyone should be very much aware of what the symptoms are of diabetes um, and for th those that are at risk um, that should be uh, getting regular screens uh, for diabetes um, and, and really to take this, this disease uh, seriously. Um, and, and uh, you know, just to, to throw out there, um, there, there is uh, a lot of good information on the Internet. There's some information that may not be as reliable. So I think probably one of the best uh, resources, I would say, is uh, the website diabetes.org, uh, which is put up by the American Diabetes Association. There's a lot of wonderful information on there um, that would be uh, helpful to the listeners. Paul, thanks for being a guest again and helping our listeners better understand this incredibly common condition of diabetes. Uh, God bless you and your work, and we hope to talk to you again. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. And we're back at Dr. Doctor with the long-awaited answer to the sweet medical trivia question. And if you were listening, you heard the answer. Let's see how many of you were listening. The question, patients with type 1 diabetes, that's the kind where they aren't making enough insulin, might receive a pancreas transplant because of all the damage that has been done throughout the body. Over 90% of patients that receive a pancreas transplant receive what other organ with it? In fact, they must receive this organ with it. Paul had mentioned it as a common 
a common thing that gets damaged with diabetes, and it is the the, the kidney, and, and the kidney because of all the importance of the little blood vessels getting rid of waste products into urine. Um, when those blood vessels get damaged, the kidney can't can't do that. A lot of these patients end up on dialysis. So as he said, if somebody needs a pancreas transplant, it's probably because they have a bunch of what we call end organ damage, damage to other organs, you know, eyes, uh, heart, blood vessels, kidneys. So 90% of them receive a kidney. And as Paul said, many of them are receiving the kidney, so they give them a pancreas anyway. Buy a kidney, get a pancreas free. Ah, yes. BOGO. Buy one, get one. Or something (laughs) like that. Although I don't think that's what was thought. Uh, I like his recommendation. Uh, Diabetes.org is a good place to go to find out more about this condition. And I love hearing the fact that these artificial pancreases are really making a difference in people's lives. Oh, yeah. I've I've started to see a few patients that, that I care for with the continuous monitors, and they just hold up a little Bluetooth style device and you just bing bong, it tells you exactly what your blood sugar is, and it really empowers folks without the whole rigmarole of checking their blood sugar with a finger stick every time. So there's a lot of hope for the future. And, you know, if there if there was one public service announcement I'd encourage folks to go home with is make sure you get screened. Um, I, I recommend everybody who's an adult gets screened annually at an annual wellness check. And even in childhood, if there's any symptoms, it's something that's worth screening for. Yep, that good old hemoglobin A1C. That's the, the one number that's very helpful to know. Uh, and it's good to hear that there's even more data out there that intermittent fasting is healthy for you. In fact, I think it's the way that the Benedictines have been eating for about 1,500 years. I bet they have a low rate of type 2 diabetes. There's a study, future study for med students listening. There we go. So thank you all for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. And be sure to rate and review our show. It helps new listeners find us. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we will be discussing geriatric medical problems with Dr. Peter Morrow. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.